Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode 61 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the Twisted Genius Dinaeus, and I am joined as ever by my co-host, sports journalist, Editor of HookedOnWrestling.co.uk, Mr. Liam Hap. Good. Well, I usually say good evening, but in this instance, it is good afternoon to you, Liam. It is good afternoon, and good afternoon to you too, Dean. Uh, I'm, I'm not worried. I'm just too busy wondering if one of these days the microphone's going to pick up me subtly mouthing along to you saying, The podcast where the big boys play. You're just going to hear that little trace as you're saying it of me just going along with it, and you know, and although the audio would never pick this up, uh, I might as well give give the game away now. I do, yes, I do wave my arms around as I'm mouthing it. So hey, there's some insight. Look at, the, look at the adjective, Liam. Podcast. Exactly. Exactly. But how are you doing? I'm I'm good. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm in. I think I'm, I'm about to enter my third month of lockdown. Um, it's, it's all good fun. Um, I've I've taken to trying to grow my own fruit and vegetables in the garden. It's it's getting to that stage now. Uh, I'm not sure if it's like middle-aged domesticity or just boredom. I think it may be a bit of both. Middle-aged and crazy, like that wrestler. What's his name? I think so. I know someone who managed him once. Oh, tip of the tongue. That- Oh. Darby, Darby Fink, something like that. Darby, yeah, yeah, it must yeah. be. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I couldn't. You know, not bothered with flowers and shit. But you know, if I can eat it, I'll grow it. Exactly. I mean, that's why we grow things, isn't it? Yeah, something like that, definitely. But um, yeah, there's there's a reason why we are we are doing this on on a Saturday afternoon, which is obviously in in this country in the UK was always a traditional time for wrestling activity. Um, but we have got ourselves a very special guest. Uh, tell tell our both of our listeners uh, all about it. Ah, I will happily tell our listeners about it. Uh, I like to think it's at least three or four. To be, I know you're trying to come with a humour here, but we've got at least three or four listeners. But very early on in the days of Because WCW, our nostalgic quest through that company was bolstered by the announcement that a, a another WCW-themed book was coming out. Now, I think most people who would listen to this podcast have probably at least been made aware of the death of WCW, and there's a few other things you can read out there that have plenty of information about the WCW days, anyone who's wrestled there, like Mick Foley's book, Steve Austin, things like that, you can get a lot of inside information on the days of WCW. But then out came uh, this book, uh, Nitro, uh, authored by Guy Evans, and I I think the one thing that really hammers home just how insightful this book is is that you always have whenever there's stories in wrestling there's always someone to uh to to call bs on it and to suggest that you know that's not how it really happened you know two sides of every story whatever this is the one and only time i i can think of where 
everyone, even, even the most compulsive liars in the industry have been compelled to go, no, 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 Guy Evans has got it spot on here. Uh, it's, it's the most thoroughly researched, uh, well-sourced, uh, just so behind the scenes. It's, it's just absolutely incredible. The things you you learn, the things you see, there's there's plenty of like direct takes from from documents and quotes from all sorts of departments. It's it's immersive. It's and I hate the term must read. Uh, anytime I see someone just just frivolously using it on Twitter, I'll generally give them stick for it uh, because there's no such thing as oh you must read it. No, you can read something if you choose to, but you really should choose to read this, basically. Definitely. Yeah, and I think the difference with, with this is that um, there are, it's not just talking to people within WCW itself. It is talking with people in TBS and other parts of the Turner Corporation and Time Warner Corporation. And so it's it's not just looking at the the wrestling side it's looking at the corporate side um and and this seemingly constant battle between uh the image and perception of professional wrestling and how that fits in or or doesn't fit in as the as the feeling is with the the corporate world and the corporate image of the turner organization that's something definitely want to uh touch on with them with our our guest today who will be along in any second now um the author of that book as you say guy evans um so this is this is going to be a different kind of interview you know we've we've spoken before with people who were who were there people who are in the trenches you know we've spoken to dave penzer jeff jarrett and just a couple of episodes ago uh lady blossom Jeannie clark um you can go and check back on all of those on our uh, website because www.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts from um i'm i'm looking forward to this because i think this is going to be a, a different kind of interview uh but it's going to be fascinating absolutely i mean we've touched upon the insight available in the book and i'm looking forward to seeing just how much insight we can get you know, picking the man himself's brain about putting this book together, maybe some additional obstacles he encountered while putting this together. And yeah, it's, it's going to be good stuff. I'm also looking forward to finding out exactly what WCW meant to him as well. And we're hoping to ask mm. him about that. Uh, yeah, there, there's so many angles to look at this from. But the, the book, yeah, we can't recommend the book highly enough. Uh, all bases are covered. No stone is left unturned. And especially, as you said, with the whole corporate view of it, if, uh, the many things we've heard over the years about how, yes, it was it was uh, it, it was the, the suits that killed WCW because they never wanted it in the first place and other horseshit like let's face it. They they wanted it absolutely fine when it was doing great. Uh, even if there were some problems with things like advertising and you know the, the certain image it set, there were definitely things that people didn't like about it. But they didn't find it quite that easy to offload WCW in say 97, 98 when it was a a, a cultural zeitgeist. 
Um, so, yeah, there's absolutely more to it than that. The book shows that, and it'll be great to dig a little deeper with Guy himself about those topics because whenever you hear someone say, oh, yeah, it was it was the fault of standards and practices, bro, not going to name any names, <laughs> or other such excuses, this book cuts through all of those, and it's going to be so good to speak to the man behind the book. Yeah. So just before we bring Guy in, just want to tell you about uh, the fact that we are part of now the Hooked on Wrestling podcast network. So uh, the the website itself, hookedonwrestling.co.uk, you are the editor of that site itself, Liam. However, our um, podcast is one of many that are on there, including uh, Three Beers Deep, uh, looking back at pivotal moments in wrestling history. Uh, the Hooked on Wrestling podcast itself, um, the most recent one looking at theme tunes and entrance music, um, the Hot Tag Wrestling podcast, uh, but uh, one that I particularly like as well is uh, Seconds Away, It's Nighttime. That's with uh, Stevie Knight, a veteran of the British wrestling industry, um, and he uh, welcomes different guests from British wrestling. Um, he's most recently had Doug Williams and a man who traveled the globe before uh, Doug, Tony Sinclair, um, a very underrated star on the continental Europe and New Japan pro wrestling. So basically uh, you've got a range of podcasts there um, that can while away the hours while we're all stuck indoors. If you go to hookedonwrestling.co.uk and click on podcasts at the top there, uh, you'll be able to download everything straight from there. It's a fantastic site. I do say so, even if you're the editor and I write for it occasionally. No one ever said we weren't biased. It is fantastic, though. Yeah, keep it keep it in the family. Keep it all in-house. But, you know, you're right. We're very proud of what we're going on there. And it is all about just having that content. So many different opinions and takes of things. Uh, as the top of the website says, it's wrestling. Enjoy it. So let's enjoy it together. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one, and you're listening to Because WCW. Now choke on that. Okay, so let's bring in the man himself, uh, the author of Nitro, the incredible rise and inevitable collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. It is Guy Evans. Guy, welcome to Because WCW. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for taking the time to uh, to speak to us. So uh, we are we are here as we said. It's a Saturday afternoon. It's early morning over in uh, New York. You are quite literally an Englishman in New York. Um, <laughs> well, a Welshman. I got to correct you there. But oh, carry on. Wow, I beg your pardon. <laughs> Terrible insult. I beg your pardon. No, um, no worries. So um, so I, I guess really the first first thing to to ask is is how how did you get the idea for this project? How did it come about? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So um, I suppose like many people listening to this, you know, I was made a fan of uh, of wrestling in general and WCW specifically back in the, the mid to late 90s. So during that that boom, as you guys know, I don't have to tell you, you know, that was something that we felt on our side of, of the pond as well. You know, wrestling was certainly getting a lot of mainstream attention at that time. And uh, that's that's when I became a fan is, is in the Monday Night Wars era. And uh, when WCW went away, that was really sort of the extent of my my interest in wrestling, I think. Um, you know, probably some of that had to do with the age I was at the time. But also, I think there was kind of a collective realization that once the two companies came together, so to speak, it wasn't quite going to be 
um, the same as it was before. So I think I stuck around for about a year or so um, to sort of see how they would integrate some of those WCW um, performers um, and somewhere around the uh, the NWO invasion, if you remember that, of mm-hmm. uh, WWF at the time. I think that's when I sort of uh, checked out for a little while. And um, strangely enough, it wasn't until uh, TNA made their, their attempt to um, essentially, I would say, you know, kind of um, start a resurgence of the, the Monday Night Wars in some form or fashion, you know, in 2010. It wasn't until that time that the wrestling really got on my radar again. And um, I think it was a, a friend of mine reaching out and saying, you know, this is quite interesting. You've got Hulk Hogan and, and Ric Flair and a lot of these guys from back in the day. They seem to be like having another run, run at it. Um, and I really started thinking about wrestling again. And, and it was at that point that I started diving into some of the the other accounts of the WCW story and, you know, uh, kind of went down that rabbit hole. And I found them all to be very entertaining and very useful as a, as a fan to go back and piece together what happened. But I still had a lot of questions in my own head um, that I didn't think had been fully answered. And I thought there was probably a different way of doing a, a, a book about WCW that might be interesting to people. So to make a long story short, uh, several years after that, uh, somewhere around 2014 or so, I sort of said, well, you know, if no one else is going to do it, then I'll, I'll give this a shot. And little did I know what a, uh, as I said to you off the air before we started recording, what a slog that was going to turn out to be. Because, um, you know, at, at the end now, we have uh, a 600-page book, which you know, is informed by over 120 interviews and it took about three and a half to four years to put it all together. So, um, it was a, it was a long process, but very much, uh, well worth it. And do you have any background in writing before this book? Yeah, I do. My background in writing really is, um, related to the work I've done in academia. So that's really my background is, um, doing academic writing. I've written, you know, prior to this book chapters and journal articles and things, things of that nature, but never a, a, a standalone book, you know, so that was a challenge in and of itself to, to put together something of this, this magnitude. Um, so it wasn't as if, you know, I'd, I'd never written anything before, but certainly uh, nothing, nothing like this. I see. So how, how did it go from being an idea in your head to, uh, to a reality and to this, uh, thing that i'm holding in my hands right now that is genuinely what your book by the way i know i mean it could be could be anything but it is genuinely that book well um it's it's something that really evolved over time because you know i i knew from the outset that i didn't really want to go down the road of here's some random person's opinion of what you know went well and what didn't go so well with wcw you know i think um there were already other other accounts that probably covered that base so i thought you know it'd be interesting to hear from um, as broad a cross section of people who are associated with the company as possible, because on a lot of the the documentaries, you know, that we've seen produced by the WWE over the years, I think you would you would agree that a lot of times you're hearing from the same voices, and some of those voices are very valid and very much attached to what was going on in the company. Other times you're hearing from people who weren't even working with WCW at the time, or are looking looking at it retrospectively, having not not being involved in the in the process, um, and you're sort of seeing the familiar faces, the, the the same talking heads again and again. So, originally, I thought it would be nice to have representation from you know all of the various departments within the company. Now, of course, as that went on over time, that grew to 
encompassing more and more people within those depart departments or within those divisions. And then a lot of input from those who worked on the corporate side. And I think that's really the aspect of the book that people have, have highlighted the most is I think this is really a book I would like to think more so about the relationship between Turner Broadcasting and this professional wrestling company, um, as opposed to kind of a week by week, blow by blow summation of what happened on the shows. You know, yeah. I, I think that that's a difficult balance to strike. And, you know, hopefully I, I did get there um, because, of course, you can't ignore, you know, the actual on screen product. But all of the shows are on the network now. I mean, anyone can pull up whatever they want if they want to find out um, what happened. So, um, I think the the deeper story was really really that dysfunctional relationship, and that's that's kind of what I tried to use to tie together everything in the book. Absolutely, I mean that is certainly one one running theme throughout that that did feel unique to me. It, it was that there was this wrestling company that just didn't seem to fit in with with the corporate world of of Turner then time warner but wouldn't ever wouldn't ever go away because ted turner loved it it seemed to be that it, it was just that i think i think you mentioned like the the analogy of you know the ginger-headed stepchild somewhere in, in the in the book but it yeah it, it it's it is a constant battle that is that is described throughout the the entire period that you cover i think yeah and i, I think you know it, you sort of have to go back at that time and remember, you know, of course, there's always been a stigma associated with pro wrestling and by extension wrestling fans. I think you could make the argument that perhaps some of that has eroded over the years. I think a lot of that has to do with how fragmented media has become and how, you know, something like wrestling now, I would argue, has become more of a, a niche sort of um, has more of a niche following. Um, very, very passionate, you know, fan base, certainly who follow the, the product today. And, um, obviously still an audience that's appealing to TV networks and advertisers. You just have to look at some of the TV deals over the past couple of years. Um, but certainly back then when it was really imperative for a company like WCW to appeal to a mass audience, because so much of their, um, viability as a company was based around, um, the advertising advertising sales that the programming could garner um i you know you, you could see why i suppose not to defend it but you could see why um someone who's not a wrestling fan who's a television executive or working on the corporate side um you know is saying you know, I, I don't understand the appeal of this wrestling stuff you know it's mm. just a bunch of guys you know in their underwear hitting each other with chairs now <laughs> as, as, as as people who you know, um, and I'm sure many people listening to this who follow it and know a lot about, about the business, I think, you know, it's it's such a fascinating um, form of entertainment. And, you know, personally, I have so much respect for people who are involved in it. I think it takes a, a hell of a lot of skill to do what these guys do. Um, it's, you know, to do it on command live in front of an audience um, and, and hit the hit the, uh, the ball out of the park as often as they do is just incredible. Um, but to you know, a non-adherent of the, the genre, a non-fan, someone who doesn't know anything about it, you could see why it would be a little bit mystifying. And, and, and as the book chronicles, you know, I think there was quite a bit of embarrassment as well that when some of these people had to go to their various uh, dinners and, and award ceremonies and, and TV events, you know, when they were asked, what's your highest rated programming, you know, they would sort of have to have to say through gritted teeth that it was uh, this wrestling show. <laughs> so, uh, 
you know, some of that stuff in the book, I think, makes for, for quite uh, quite funny reading as well as quite uh, illuminating reading also. Yeah, um, that, that, that actually did leap out when I read the book as the first thing that really stood out to me was the degree to which you were able to cover the uh, the times where members of the corporate structure had to eat humble pie. Uh, I won't go into too many details and small things, but there's little anecdotes like the uh, the bets with Eric Bischoff and things like that. Uh, and mm. the reason why these things stood out to me is if you think about all the other sources we've had for the times of WCW before this book came out, and a lot of it comes through WWE themselves, you know, histories written by the winners. All we ever really hear about is the 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 degree to which um, the corporate structure destroyed WCW and how apparently they never had a chance because of it, where it becomes apparent reading your book that, you know, when, when WCW did things right, it was even begrudgingly, it was recognized. And there was more to the downfall of WCW than just they had it in for them. Uh, it's, it's fair to say, isn't it, Guy, that the the, uh, the, the the knife was given to corporate by WCW themselves. Well, I think uh, I think both things can be true. I think you know certainly I, I would start that answer by saying obviously WCW did have advantages being part of Turner. You know I mm. think that's something that you have to recognize that you know their ability to be owned by a corporation that also owned television networks and the fact that they could do all kinds of tricks in terms of coming on the air early and 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 staying on a little bit late and obviously the cross promotion that was theoretically possible between the various turner entities i know a lot of people with wcw would make the point that you know that never really happened to the level that they would have liked it to happen um but on paper you certainly had a lot of advantages um in in practice you know, there were many influential people, I think, who were kind of waiting for the day um, that, you know, this hot streak that the company was on was going to come to an end. And, and that would give them more cachet in terms of making their case that WCW should be put off the airwaves. At the same time, as you pointed out there, you know, I don't think any sane person would make the argument to you that the quality of WCW's programming in those last two, two and a half years was anything resembling what it was during its peak. Oh, and, you know, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm sure there's, you know, there's people listening who might say, well, I really enjoyed this, you know, storyline in 2000 or whatever, or this angle. Um, and, you know, there were some bright spots along the way, but um, obviously the, the actual content of the shows, you know, keep in mind that we're talking about, an, you know, WCW having an uphill battle um, for years and years in terms of changing the perception of what the company was all about. And unfortunately, I think towards the end, um, the company really became, you know, more of an embarrassment, quite frankly, than it was before the Monday Night Wars era with the nature of the programming and, and the inability of the company to convert, you know, the, the television audience that they had um, into, into paying customers. I mean, that's really one of the biggest stories, I think, of the last couple of years of the company is you know, to a fairly decent level, people were still willing to tune in on a weekly basis, but almost no one was willing to actually spend their hard-earned money on on any of the pay-per-views. And once that trend began, um, it was uh, it was something that was very difficult to stop from that point onwards. Mm. One one thing or some something that you you mentioned in your book that I wasn't aware of, and I think it's interesting that it was never really tapped into, was that in the in the sort of the late the, the mid to late nineties in the infancy of the internet, that the, the WCW website was doing incredible numbers compared mm. to, to other sites. And that never seemed to have been tapped into by the company. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a whole chapter in the book which deals with the development of wrestling on the internet. And if you think about how the internet was viewed at that time, I mean, this is kind of more of a macro point, but I think we all sort of looked at, you know, there's there's traditional forms of media and then there's the internet, you know, there's just a, a separate thing unto itself. And if you remember at that time, you know, wrestling um, promoters and people who are involved in the business would refer to internet fans, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like we have real fans who are in the crowd holding up signs, and then we have these internet fans, you know, who are apparently on their keyboards rating matches. So there was that separation. And um, I, I think there's a, there's a couple of quotes in that chapter relating to some of the skepticism that various people in traditional media had about the internet and if it was something that was going to persist and really become um, a factor in terms of commerce and in terms of how people got their news and, and everything else that we know it to be today. So um, perhaps that was you know, a factor in terms of them maybe not leveraging that audience more. Um, but certainly if you read some of the quotes from people who are involved in WCW's internet division, you know, they sort of look back and scratch their heads and say, well, you know, what, what a missed opportunity in terms of mm. being able to, to, to sell merchandising and, and get people's, uh, you know, contact information and build mailing lists and advertise our shows. I mean, all of the things that are kind of second nature to businesses today, um, you know, you think about those millions of people accessing the website and, and very rarely, I, mean, I remember being on the website back then, very rarely was there any sort of call to action or, you know, way for the company, it seemed to, to capture you as a, as a customer. So, um, it's quite funny looking back just how different things were. And, and again, what a missed opportunity that arguably was. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, um, in the late nineties, I was at university. We all had, uh, internet access at that point. And, and I remember going, you know, regularly visiting wcwwrestling.com as it was, <laughs> it was called at that point. And yeah, it was a, a bit of news and some profiles, but as you say, not a, not a huge amount to, uh, to, to capture you and keep, keep you there but um right interesting yeah i mean what how did how did you get this the the access and how do you get the ball rolling to talking to these people in the corporate area because obviously you'll you'll talk to wrestlers and yeah you can throw you can throw names of wrestlers out to a wrestling fan and they'll all know who you're talking about but when yeah when you've got some of these some of these uh you know executives that names wouldn't mean anything to people but they they have mm-hmm. fascinating stories to tell um you know people like uh, you know dick people will know diamond dallas page but they wouldn't necessarily know someone like dick cheatham for example that's that's right and some of those people really i think provided some of the the best content in the book Ooh. uh yeah, I think there's some some sort of shadowy figures, some names that we've heard of before, the Harvey Schillers, the Jamie Kellners, you know, you hear from people like that in the book. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of getting access to those people, I was probably as surprised as anyone else reading the book that I was able to, to really go as far as I did and, and talk to as many people as I did. Um, and I think part of it was kind of a domino effect where once you've established that you have um, interacted with, you know, a, a number of fairly high profile people that does give you a little bit more credibility as you go. Yeah. Um, having said that, there are some people who, you know, I don't think are necessarily affected by that in terms of their, their decision. You know, there's certainly some people who are more, they, they weigh, weigh their decision to do something like this based more around what they feel your intentions are and how transparent you're being with 
um, what exactly you're going to do with this information. Um, I, so, you know, it's it's certainly not an easy thing to um, to reach out to people who um, are not associated with the wrestling business anymore. Some of them don't necessarily have the fondest memories, as we talked about, of um, of being around it. Yeah. Um, and so there were some people, you know, it, it sounds kind of dramatic and I, I wasn't necessarily checking in with these people every single day, but there were some people that it may be 18 months between our first conversation and them actually saying, okay, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm ready to do this. So, um, you definitely needed a lot of patience and, you know, sometimes when I was kind of giving my pitch to people, you, you kind of feel like you know, one one false word or, or one sentence that doesn't exactly match up with what they had in mind could kind of spell the end of the whole thing. So it was like a very delicate balancing act. And, wow. you know, I'm very appreciative to to all of those people because without them, it, it, it wouldn't be anywhere near, I think, you know, what it is in, in the end. Yeah. Wow. Interest. Very interesting. Now, out of curiosity, who's the first person you spoke to? You know, that, that was kind of uh, kind of random. The, uh, there's a VP of WCW, uh, Rob Garner. Um, for whatever reason, I, I honestly don't remember why, but he was the first person that um, I spoke to, uh, which was would have been in January of 2015, and the book came out in July of 2018. So at that point, you know, I don't... I, I think I kind of, I thought I knew what I was doing, but, you know, looking back on it now, if I was to listen to that interview, I probably would kind of cringe a little bit um, because, you know, I was kind of feeling my way and trying to figure things out. Um, and he was an example of someone who, you know, had been associated with the company for over 10 years, you know, as a high level um, person with, within the, uh, within the company and um, had turned down uh, interview requests ever since WCW was sold. And this was the first time, I think, to my knowledge, he came out on the record and and uh, and said a lot of things. And really? so, it, so again, you have to be really um, just grateful and appreciative for people like him to, uh, to to help you out. Because again, you know, without them, I you know, I, I don't think uh, the book would have resonated the way that it has. Well, thank you for that. And did, did you get anyone either either on the executive side of things or on the, the the wrestling talent side of things? But did you get anyone who was just flat refused to speak to you? Yeah, I mean, of course, you, you know, you're going to get some people that um, there were there were some people who weren't willing to speak on the record. So you know, you try to compromise with them and say, well, let's see if we can talk on on a background only basis. Um, or, or just have a, a conversation that's not going to make its way into the book. So, you know, in, in most cases with those kind of people, um, that, that was the end result. Um, you did have a couple of people that you know, were just like, no way, I'm not talking about this wrestling shit. You know, I dealt with it. I dealt with it for years and years, you know, on the TV side. And I just, you know, it's like a bad memory that I don't want to revisit. Um, and then, you know, quite honestly, I, I said this recently, I think in, a, in another chat about the book, um, there's probably about eight to 10 people that I spoke with that, um, you know, their comments didn't make it in the book at all because, uh, you know, keep in mind, uh, I mean, I don't have to tell you guys, but you know, in, in, in dealing with people in wrestling, like I say, tremendous amount of respect for all these people. Um, but inherently, you know, a, a lot of people are sort of working, you know, they're trying to <laughs> try, trying to get across, yes. you know, trying to get across something. And, you know, you, you've got to be able to sit and, and listen and really pick apart that sometimes because, you know, I can remember a couple of people in particular that, you know, 
they were sort of using this, I think, as an excuse maybe to level some scores, to get back at some people and, you know, telling you things that you just know are factually, you know, in, just totally incorrect. Um, so it, it's not as if, you know, every single person who had anything to say, okay, let's put that in the book. It was kind of a selective process. And then the thing that really helped um, ascertain to what extent people were being truthful and to what extent they were credible um, is the fact that very luckily I was able to get access to a lot of documents and materials, um, you know, things like financial statements and emails and all this stuff relating to WCW. So if someone was talking to me about the company's financial performance, you know, as they're talking, I can just pull out my folder and, and look at, you know, are they in the ballpark or are they just pulling this, you know, out of, yeah. out of you know, where, so that, that was also helpful as well. So uh, one thing I want to ask on a similar note is, was there any one moment or maybe one particular bit of resistance to trying to get mm. this information that made you seriously wonder if you'd bother seeing this project through to the end? Was there ever a moment where you think, is this wow. really worth it? Wow, that's that's a really good question because I know I, I, I can give you the exact moment. So ah. um, I had a conversation with Brad Siegel. I think I... I think I mentioned this somewhere at the back end of the book, maybe in like the acknowledgements or somewhere in there. It's in there. Um, I had a conversation with Brad Siegel and this was, this was something that took a long time, you know, to, to put together. Um, so obviously, you know, again, as many people know, he was the guy at the, at the end who was running, you know, both TBS and TNT at the very end before the, the AOL time Warner, um, merger. So, uh, you know, there was a stretch there about, about a year where he was effectively the figurehead of WCW, you know, so when Eric Bischoff and Vince Russo came back and, you know, they were doing everything on a creative side, he was the guy who was, you know, who they were reporting to essentially. So, you know, so I had, had a conversation with him, um, you know, again, on an off the record basis where I was able to, to get some stuff that really, you know, helped put some other things in the book in context. But then finally, we set up a call um, to try to get him on the record. And uh, at some point, you know, fairly early on in the conversation, I remember him saying, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about this. I'm going to need to to speak to my, you know, representation. I may need to get some kind of a something in writing because I don't know if I want to be, you know, uh, quoted as saying certain things. Um, and he said, you know, he said, can we just, can we just do this the way that, you know, the way that we did before, which is just, uh, you know, kind of a, a talk on background only. And I, I kind of made the point. I said, well, I think, you know, based on, um, the fact that a lot has been said, you know, about yourself and your involvement with the company, I think it's really important to, to, to get you on the record here. So he said, okay, you know, here's what we're going to do. He said, give me a week and I'll, um, I'll reach out to my people or whatever. And, I mean, you guys can probably guess what happened next. Um, you know, that was the last time I, I spoke to him on the phone. Um, and I think there was some communication by email after that. And it was like, you know, he got cold feet and he didn't want to do it. And and that was that was the one moment where I was like, you know, that was such a disappointing outcome because it's something that, you know, took a long time to get to um, that I was kind of like, you know, is this is this even something that's going to be completed? Um, so that kind of, you know, setbacks like that, they do kind of uh, affect you for a short period of time. But then that was outweighed by, you know, just overwhelmingly so many other people, um, you know, in similar positions within both TBS and WCW who are just more than willing to, to talk and help 
Um, and as I say, it wasn't as if I got nothing from speaking with with Brad Siegel anyway. But that was that was a little bit deflating and disappointing at the time. But luckily, it was early enough that you know there was still time to uh, to really get get a lot of great stuff for the book. And there's um, we talk about you know financial statements and so on that you, mm-hmm. you talked about briefly then and. Obviously, they're, they're the things that people know about that are already out in the public domain, like the, the huge amount of money they spent on on um, signing Master P, and that, that never <laughs> went anywhere. But there are some there are some some other things, and I'm 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 trying to rack my my memory my brain. Um, as regular listeners of this uh, podcast will know, my memory is terrible due to multiple concussions. <laughs> but um, oh, it dear. was um, oh, here we go. I've actually just found it. I think it's where um. Where they they spend seventy five thousand dollars on um on on a a, a skit that never happens. Um, <laughs> yeah. Where is it? Here we go. Where it's um filming someone in, um filming someone in a graveyard, wasn't it? Um, oh God, yeah. The uh, I think it's Vampiro, Vampiro and the Demon, maybe. Yeah. Here we go. Yes, Vampiro and the graveyard. Vampiro. Yeah. <laughs> And um, yeah, they change their mind the day before it happens, and they've got to pay for it because everything's being set up and everyone's already in location. And it's just things like that are just astounding to to read. The, it, it's it's one of those left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing moments, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, you see more and more of those kind of stories again in the last couple of years, where you know, as I said, you you know you had uh, Brad Siegel in this position of theoretically being the figurehead of the company, but really, you know, he was doing that alongside a, a number of other roles, including running the, you know, the TV network. So, you know, I think those last couple of years where it really, really wasn't clear who was in charge and people were getting, you know, the sense that I got speaking to people in the company is, you know, you would speak to, to one person who theoretically you reported to, they would tell you one thing, five minutes later, you know, someone else would walk in the office, tell you something else. And then you get a phone call and there would be another, you know, executive or advisor telling you something else. And then you get an email, you know, contradicting all of that. So I think the, the communication and just the internal chaos that was going on, I mean, kind of manifested itself in what we saw on screen. I mean, just uh, it's it's kind of unbelievable to think about some of the stuff that actually made it onto onto the camera, you know, towards the end. And uh, it was kind of unfortunate because if you remember, and again, all of this is kind of subjective, but I think most people would agree that the last couple of months of WCW, it was like there was kind of like a renewed energy because um, obviously everyone was under the impression that, you know, Eric Bischoff was coming back with this Fusion Media Ventures and it was going to be, you know, hopefully a, a gradual return back to to challenging the WWF at some point. And everything on screen got a lot tighter and seemed to, mm. I mean, there was, you know, obviously some some goofy stuff as there always was, but um, things seemed to make a, a lot more sense. There was a lot more coherence to the product. Um, and it would have been interesting to kind of think about where it would have gone had the company not not closed down. Um, but, uh, Absolutely. but yeah, there's, go ahead. No, I was going to say we've we've covered um, we've covered the very well the very last pay per view I think the last two pay per views and that is something mm. that we've we've definitely picked up on here yeah. is that ironically mm. as it was 
going, it was coming back together again. We oh, beat yeah. ourselves oh, up on sure. a regular basis about that, especially me, I think. <laughs> well, Liam has yeah. Liam has written a years worth of what ifs. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, just in, just in general, like we we. I think for me and a lot of those two fans, that guy is absolutely spot on. That those last few months, they were just like a little. It's just like a little period unto itself where you can go back and enjoy it. And if you do that on mm. the WWE Network, which you can now, which is great, but you do that and you kind of dig it and you're like, oh, this is a, the side of WCW I like as the consumer. Mm. And then mm. you kind of uh, get to the season finale where it all ends and you just end up sad again. So it's it's a no it's a no win scenario. But uh, yeah. I think you've made a really a really interesting point there about the the management and when you mm-hmm. compare compare that to their competitor the WWE who have this great constant throughout the last thirty plus years mm-hmm. where everything stops at Vince McMahon's desk there and and if you're if you're not if you're getting told conflicting information by someone you can ask Vince and he will tell you and that is the definitive answer. Whereas um as you say, you've got the you've got different people at different levels and a constant change of management and change of philosophy. Mm. And mm. did surely that had to have hurt the W hurt the, the WCW WWE war from from WCW side of things. Well think about this. I you know Ed Ferrara um, who of course you know came in with with Vince Russo in October of, of '99 from the WWF. You know, he made a, a very interesting point once where he talked about it. W- it was almost like clockwork in the last couple of years, where every three months a huge change would be made. Right, so you had October of '99. You know him and Vince Russo come in. So now you go forward three months, January 2000. You know Vince Russo is is gone home. They want to put together this this committee of people. He doesn't want to work with them. So now there's a different um, creative, uh, you know, there's a, there's a creative changeover at, at that point, a fairly significant one in January of 2000. Well, now we fast forward again another three months, and all of a sudden now Eric Bischoff and Vince Russo are back. And so the committee's gone, and it's the dream team, the guy who built up WCW, the guy who really helped WWF come back in the ratings. They're together. Now we go forward again three months, and you know if you remember that splash at the beach, so now Eric Bischoff is gone. You know Hulk Hogan, you know he he's gone as well. So now it's it's Vince Russo and you know a different committee of people for a while. Um, three months October now Vince Russo's gone. You know he has the the issue with with concussions and everything else. He's out of the picture. Another three months. That's when um, the Fusiant takeover supposedly happens. And then, you know, almost three months after that, the company closes down and Vince McMahon appears on Nitro. So how, you know, again, I, you know, we're talking about the the on-screen product because that's, as fans, that's what attracted us to WCW and that's what we focus on the most. How were you ever supposed to build any continuity mm-hmm. um, or anything that, you know, had a long-term payoff when literally every three months there was a huge shakeup and a huge change? And whatever you think of those individual entities or people involved, um, you know, I think it's, it, I, I've never worked in wrestling, but I would like to think it's probably pretty difficult in a 12 week span to really build anything substantive. So just, um, absolute, absolute chaos, really, when you think about those last, uh, those last couple of years. So we, we have covered a fair amount of the 
the you know the the wistfulness and the negative and i suppose with wcw it's it's hard to get to positive aspects and we found Mm. that through through 60 episodes of this podcast so far that's exactly (laughs) what we found ourselves in but there are definitely a few really enjoyable positive things that came out through the book that i'd love to talk to you about one of them probably Mm. my favorite part of the book was the in-depth account of uh, one of the very early New World Order moments, which was the mm. uh, infamous invasion Nitro, which culminated in them, long, or Kevin Nash long darting Rey Mysterio mm. into the side of the trailer. And this book provides so much insight into putting that episode together. And even though I'm not exactly sure what I would ask of you that would that would add on top of what, what the book already covers. I felt it would have been remiss of me if I didn't at least bring that up and maybe get some more accounts from you from uh, gathering up at night because it, it, even when people talk outside the book, it's one of the things they, they speak of most fondly uh, and it was just such a crazy night of production. Yeah, it's, it's funny because what I realised putting together that particular story and I'm glad you focused on that because that's one of my favourite parts as well is you know sometimes when you talk to people involved about stuff like this they'll kind of give you a stock answer at mm. first like oh yeah you know it was a great moment you know lawn dart threw ray mysterio into the trailer whatever it was you know made a big splash then when you when you sort of follow up and probe a little bit further you realize that you know a lot of these things actually there are still people involved who remember this stuff to a lot of detail uh you know especially on the production side and um, if, if you're willing to kind of stick with it a little bit more in a conversation, you can you can piece things together. And I think what was most interesting about that story was just learning about the process of how that came about. And, you know, I think there's some detail in the book about, you know, Kevin Sullivan is, is there with a group of people and, you know, he's he's soliciting these ideas, of course, adding his own and, and then putting them into, you know, an order on a single sheet of paper, um, you know, and of course, you know, involving production in in that process and then taking taking the group outside to kind of do a dry run with the cameras and of course as you know as they went through that they would sort of adjust and and make certain tweaks and oh we thought that was a good idea but actually let's do it this way instead and you know just that just to picture that creative process that collaborative process of all of these voices involved and and uh and, and how they put all that together again i think that gives you kind of a pre- an appreciation of when wrestling is done really well um, again, just what a what an amazing form of entertainment it is to do all of that, you know, fairly close to showtime, you know, under time constraints, um, and and to try to synthesize all of these different ideas. And you know, again, I don't have to tell you guys, but you know, keep in mind there there are people sometimes who are suggesting things for their own benefit and and maybe have ulterior motives and agendas that aren't necessarily clear. So to to wade through all of that and come up with something that's good for everyone. You know, I think that's an amazing talent, and you know, again, it was a lot of it was a lot of fun being able to lay that out for people, and and I'm glad that you uh, you picked up on that. Another memory from that era as well for me is that, um, again, as I said, I was at, I was at university, and I I would get tapes of of Raw and Nitro sent to me um, on a reasonably regular basis and Mm -hmm. and I remember watching uh, an episode of Nitro shortly after the the infamous 
uh, Hogan heel turn. Mm. And uh, some friends of mine who weren't wrestling fans came in and uh, were wondering why uh, Hulk Hogan was dressed in black and had a very strange looking <laughs> stubble and was having rubbish thrown at him. And you know, I had to explain, oh, Hulk Hogan's turned bad. And I, I still pick, remember to this day, one one friend of mine and literally her her mouth was just like, she gasped, her mouth was open, jaw virtually hit the hit the floor and Hulk Hogan's turned bad. And I, th- I think this, this was the heel turn that, that almost went beyond wrestling. Cause Hulk mm. Hogan was known in, in popular culture more than any other wrestler probably at the, at the time. Um, and I think that's something you know, that, that that's really captured in this book as well. Just how much of a massive cultural impact on wrestling that one heel turn had. Oh, absolutely. And I think, again, as we talked about before, you know, keep in mind that the back then, I think it was really important for WCW in the position that it was in to kind of have these, you know, Brad Siegel called, called them these big ideas or big concepts that would make sense to advertisers who weren't necessarily thrilled about getting involved in wrestling. So if you could sit these people down in a room and pull up a tape and say, well, look, here's what, here's what's going on in our show right now. We've got, you, you know, you, you remember Hulk Hogan, right? Big, big star from the eighties, all American guy. Well, you know, he's, he's turned bad and he's wearing all black now and he's leading this, this band of, you know, wrestlers from, from Vince McMahon's operation, uh, you know, who are, who are invading WCW and we've kind of got this, this conflict going on. And if you were to show them some of that footage and some of the, you know, uh, beatdowns at the end of the show and the vitriol coming from the fans and the and the crap that was being thrown in the ring, you know, I think that you know, and I and I know that made a lot of people stand up and take notice. Like, oh, this is something different, and this is something yeah. that seems pretty compelling and and uh, makes you know makes sense because you you know it's it's not you know a feud over who's the better wrestler or who can make you know the other guy submit to his finishing move. It's like a broader thing that that most people can get their teeth into and it actually makes me think of a story which i think didn't make it into the book but i remember talking to someone you know we mentioned um wcw's internet division before i remember talking to talking to someone who was who worked in that division and they were saying how you know one day they were watching a a vhs tape of i'm sure you guys remember when the giant turned heel at the end of that episode do you know which one you know what i'm talking about Mm. uh well i suppose he did turn heel a lot, but the first the first time when he joined the uh, the NWO. Yeah, okay. he was yes. like yeah. he, he was like one of the first guys to actually join the original three, wasn't he? That that that's right. So this yeah. would have been like I want to say maybe like September '96 or something. But anyway, he he was you know he was in his office watching that show, and he, I remember him saying that you know next thing he knows he has all these people coming into the room like you know wait we re- we rewind that for a second you know let me take a look at what just happened there. And, and I remember he talked about, you know, having a, a crowded office full of <laughs> these people in suits that you would never expect to even even care about WCW. And um, I think that's that's something maybe as wrestling fans that we don't always see is, you know, what grabs the attention of, of people who wouldn't usually watch. And again, you know, it's not like today where I think the WWE has, you know, a, a base of fans that they can leverage for their network and everything else that's going to, that's going to continue to make the company, you know, profitable for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, back then you really did have to draw in the the mass audience and do things that would make 
you know, think about Dennis Rodman, you know, showing up on Nitro. You had you had to do yeah. things that would make, um, you know, the casual fans take notice. So, um, just uh, just just amazing stuff when you go back and, and look at some of those shows. And um, was there anything that springs to mind where you would have watched something happen in WCW as a fan at the time? that mm-hmm. may, maybe didn't make an awful lot of sense or you viewed it one way. And then when you spoke to these people and found out about the, the behind the scenes reasons that something happened, you know, a light bulb went off in your head and suddenly it made a lot more sense or you viewed it totally differently. <laughs> um, maybe when uh, Roddy Piper went to Alcatraz, that was probably one that like at the time you're like, what, what, what? what's going on here? Like, why is, why is he locked in a cell? Like, why is he ranting? Why is he on a boat? You know? And I, I don't mean to suggest that like, Oh, now it makes all the sense in the world. But, um, you know, that was a, uh, that was a story that we, we go into in the book with the help of Neil Pruitt, who was, um, the voice of the NWO, one of the major producers with WCW, uh, uh, actually someone who's really become a good friend of mine. And, um, there's a podcast that we've put together called, uh, Neil Pruitt's secrets of WCW Nitro, where he goes through a lot of these, these stories and, um, you know, him providing the context as to what they were asked to do and what the, the overall concept was, you know, it kind of made me say, okay, well now I get it. Um, but, um, you know, just, just seeing it, you know, uh, at first glance as a fan, you kind of like scratch your head, like of all things, why would, why would they do that? But, um, (laughs) You know, if I guarantee if people haven't, you know, read the book, if, if you pick up the book and read that one story and then go back and look at the uh, the promos of Piper and Alcatraz, it'll make things uh, even more entertaining for you. I've got to say that out of, I think out of everyone featured in that book, Neil Pruitt is one of my favorite people in that book. It's just some of the, oh, yeah. some of the things that he, uh, he has to do. Company oh yeah. And I, I could, yeah, and I, 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 there's another story he tells in there where you know just just came to mind as you were saying that where you know people might remember the uh, the first NWO pay per view which I think you know for the most part was kind of deemed a, a disaster but there was a there's a great um, opening video you know where Eric Bischoff is at this podium and he's addressing you know the the NWO fans and he's kind of threatening you know, WCW wrestlers that if you're not going to join us you know this that and the other is going to happen yeah. and he tells a story in the book about being at Uno's about be, being at this uh, pizza restaurant in uh, Chicago and basically him and you know a few other production people just kicking around ideas and and helping flesh out the concept and again it's just very interesting to hear because you know maybe I'm sort of naive but prior to going into this book you kind of picture you know, something like that is being done in a, you know, in a conference room and someone's laying out, you know, all of these different timelines and plans. And a lot of times you realize like a lot of the best stuff that you remember was just kicked around casually at the bar or in a restaurant or on the way to a show, leaving a show. And I think a lot of times that's where a lot of the, the magic happens. So he, he definitely has quite a few uh, good stories in the book. Yeah, that's exemplified. Another little tidbit I remember you documenting was the, the, the dressing rooms with the bottles of, and glasses of wine around everywhere. And that, yeah. that kind of also su- really, really sums up. But yeah, a lot, a lot of creative energy comes from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not that I'm saying this for experience or anything. <laughs> oh, no, of course not. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> um, you, you, you mentioned about really getting into WCW as a fan with the Monday Night Wars. Obviously, this 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 book documents 
a, a little bit of just before the Monday Night Wars as well. Was there anything? Mm-hmm. Was there anything uh, before or maybe just outside your remit as a fan that? was really eye-opening to like maybe one i don't know like a a wrestler or a show or a development some something that really wasn't on your radar before you made the attempt to to piece this all together that the book kind of made you a huge fan of oh that's a good that's a good question um you know i think it's it's interesting because you go back and you look at some of those pre-nitro shows like it's it's tempting to think that you know, if you didn't know any better, you would think, okay, you know, WCW is just this kind of, just, you know, there's nothing happening, basically. There's no bright spots. And then all of a sudden, Nitro comes along, and next thing you know, Hall and Nash, and things start happening, and, you know, uh, they, they kick into high gear. But obviously, you know, there were some bright spots prior to the to the Nitro era. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the performers that WCW had on the roster, I mean, you know, I've, I've seen people uh since i started the book you know i'll have people send me different sort of memorabilia and and posters and whatever else they have laying around they'll scan them in send them to my email and from time to time people will send me like here's a house show you know card in 1994 and you look at some of the names and it's like okay you know rick flair is on that list you know ricky steamboat is on there sting you know hulk hogan like just a just, you know, Steve Austin, like Macho Man, like you could go down the list and see there's 20, you know, Hall of Fame people who were who were on these shows. So I think in a way that kind of enhances, you know, our ability to go back and see some of that stuff now where in the moment it may not have seemed like a big deal that, you know, Steve Austin had a match with, with Randy Savage. But then when you pull it up on YouTube today, knowing what happened with Austin subsequently, it give, gives it a, a deeper meaning. So, you know, I, I think... Um, I suppose to answer your question, you know, I did develop an appreciation that although on a business level, you know, there was certainly a a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff going on that wasn't very positive prior to Nitro. Um, Creatively, there was, there was definitely, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of bright spots. And for people who were with the company, um, basically from beginning to end, you know, someone like Anil Pruitt, he wasn't there right at the beginning, but fairly close to it. Um, He'll actually often you know be more inclined to talk about you know what happened in 92 93 94 as opposed to what happened you know during the nitro era because it became so big at that point and they were producing so much programming i think to many people um it kind of all blends together so hopefully that that answers your question yeah and it's funny you touch upon that that just pre-nitro period well just pre uh um hall and nash period because we are running through Mm -hmm. the nitro episodes just like a watch along thing one of the one of the different series we do on this podcast and one of the things me and dean have made note of many times is, is just how just just how different the whole structure of it all is before it, mm. you you're right it definitely did take a different uh turn when hall first showed up on uh, may 27th i think it was coming up to the anniversary of that um but yeah like it felt a lot of the time where nitro obviously was this vehicle that Bischoff really wanted to to push WWE, but uh, a lot of the time until Scott Hall showed up, it came across as the number two show still behind Saturday Night. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's that's right because if you go back and look at some of those early Nitros, they're constantly plugging matches on Saturday Night, aren't they? I think a lot of those promo pieces are still you know on the the network versions of the shows. 
you know, I, I, one of the things I did when in the early stages of, of putting this together is, you know, going back and, and basically just, just watching everything over again or as much as I could. And one thing that really stood out to me, and I think this is really a function of Nitro being an hour at the start, which, by the way, is a detail that a lot of people, uh, even associated with the company, have forgot. Uh, you'd be amazed the number of times I would go into a question saying that to someone and they were like, what, what, you know, what are you talking about? It was, it was two hours from the start, then we went to three. And I think a lot of people forget in those in those first uh, you know six or seven months it was an hour, mm. but just just how quickly you know the, the shows go by. I'm sure you guys have noticed that as well. Where you know there's there's they managed to to really pack in quite a lot to that. I, I guess you know without commercials you're talking like 45 minutes or so. Correct. Um, yeah. And and get a lot accomplished I think in that time. Whereas you know today you know um, I'm not an expert on on contemporary very wrestling but a lot of times the shows that i have seen you sit there after three hours saying well what exactly was accomplished you know how, how did things move forward how did they how did they leave me with something that's going to make me interesting interested to watch next time so the fact they're able to accomplish so much in that short amount of time i think really helped nitro build a, a lot of momentum no definitely because we've we've gone through some episodes of nitro and you know, at the end we've said that did not feel like anywhere near like 45 minutes it's just flown mm. by others are, are more of a chore but yeah. for sure but no, no match <laughs> of the year c- candidates or anything but when you watch right. 45 minutes and and the matches are are, are decent and as you said the, the, the tempo of it is brisk and, and it comes mm. to that big question what did they accomplish yeah we t- we generally tend to pass fail them don't we dean and yeah even if they don't actually have anything that can be considered a great match it's just, mm-hmm. even in retrospect, it's 45 minutes of enjoyable television. It's, it's, it's incredible. Oh, yeah, yeah and, and I think the fresh matchups as well. Yes, definitely. That's right. And I, I think the thing that WCW did really well, especially at the beginning and going into its peak, was the variety. You know, you could, if you were a fan of the Luchadors, you know, there would be something for you. If you were a fan of, you know, the, the star power, then you're going to get the, the Hogan's of the world, et cetera. in, in the main event, you know, you're going to get the technical wrestling with Benoit and Guerrero and Milenko. You're going to get the, the international flavor, whether it be the, you know, the European style with Regal and Finley and all these guys, or the, the Japanese imports, you know, wrestling in a different style. And I think that, you know, that was something that a lot of people remember quite fondly about WCW is, there really was something for everyone. And, and over time, you know, if you were attracted to a particular part of the show and then ended up sticking around for another segment, you'd invariably become a fan of someone else or something else on the show. And having spoken to both, you know, Kevin Sullivan and Eric Bischoff for this book, I think that was a, that was a conscious effort on their part is, you know, they used the example of like a buffet. Like we don't, we don't just want to give everyone the same, um, the same sort of plotting style. We want to give them a fresh look in every single segment. And definitely when I think about those early shows, I think quick, you know, it was very bright, you know, in terms of the presentation, there was a lot of energy, a lot of variety. And um, actually, you know, some some of the best shows to go back and watch are those shows in the, in the embryonic stages. Dungeon of Doom aside, that's a different story which we can talk about. But I'll put that I'll put that to the side. I, I don't know. I mean, we are very fond of Kevin Sullivan, Master of Disguise, where they'd have all these segments <laughs> where he'd be dressed up as a, a Baywatch extra or a, or a granny. Oh my gosh. We were huge fans uh, of that. 
But you look at you look at the last episode of Nitro that we just we just covered, which was number twenty five from I think February ninety six, and you had um, you had Fit Finley making his debut. You had um, mm. Loch Ness against Alex Alex Wright, so two European wrestlers. You had Hulk Hogan and, and Arn Anderson, and then you had Ric Flair and Randy Savage. So exactly mm. as you're saying, a bit of everyone, everything or something for everyone, um, and. Yeah, similarly, the the most arguably the most successful British wrestling promoter Brian Dixon uses that same buffet analogy, and it's something that we've brought up on on previous episodes many times. So it's it's good to see that uh, Kevin Sullivan and uh, Eric Bischoff have the same philosophy. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, oh man, I think about some of those those Dungeon of Doom skits. You know, the one with Hogan in the cave or what have you. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> what the what the hell was going on there? But you know that that aside, uh, that kind of stuff aside, I mean, um, you know, again, I think it's it's kind of tempting to think, well, you know, it wasn't until Hall and Nash came in that's when everything sort of kicked off, and you know, they definitely laid a, a, an amazing foundation. And people forget, you know, they were they were winning their fair share of Monday nights before that. You know, it was it was after Hall's debut that you know the 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 winning streak began shortly thereafter. Um, but it wasn't as if, you know, Raw had gone undefeated or something. I mean, Nitro won the very first head-to-head, you know, matchup between the programs. Ooh. So, um, you know, definitely uh, if people have the, the network, go back in 95 and 96, some uh, really fun shows to go back and, and look at. Yeah, and to answer your question for what was going on with the Dungeon of Doom, we have answered that in a previous episode, and the answer is Hulk Hogan's midlife crisis. <laughs> yes. That's the... Probably, probably uh, as close to an explanation as anyone could come up with. I think it's been amazing. Do you know what? If you if you wanted to do a, a second WCW book, we would strongly recommend just just looking at what was going through Hulk Hogan's mind from '95 <laughs> to '96, because most wrestling fans tend to, you know, they use derogatory terms about his selfishness. But going through it bit by bit, you, in retrospect, we can't help but feel sorry for him. <laughs> well, I think he was he's kind of uh, his character was in limbo, wasn't it? You know, because yeah. he he'd had so much success with this one presentation, and now instead of it being you know 1987, it's you know 1996, and obviously the fan base had changed, the culture had changed, and just the sheer inertia of him being uh, around for so long. Um, you know, it's it's kind of interesting to think about if he hadn't have made that turn, you know, what what would have happened to Hulk Hogan, you know, would he have gone back at that stage to the WWF and had maybe a short-lived sort of nostalgia run uh, and and then maybe petered out fairly soon after? I don't know. I mean, no one knows, obviously. But, um, you know, that that move that he made, you talk about all the stars aligning and everything coming together perfectly, not only for the company, not only with Hall and Nash coming in, but also given where he was at with his character and with his sort of waning popularity, um, that's just something I don't think you could ever, you know, people, people underestimate it sometimes I think and say, well, yeah, it, it made a big splash because it was, you know, the top baby face turning heel, but it was, there were so many more layers to that story and so much backstory and history and, and things wrapped up in that. You know, I don't think you'll ever see a comparable uh, heel turn on that level. No, but the, the, only, the only person I can, I can think, that could ever potentially come close to it. And I think that that ship's probably sailed now would be John Cena. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I think that that ship has sailed personally. I think uh, there was probably a time a few years ago where, where fans were, 
you know, either clamoring for it or, or in some cases expecting it. And I know, you know, he kind of toyed around with that idea at, at various times, didn't he? And kind mm. of Im- implied that it may be happening. But, um, you know, I think at, at this stage, it wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have the impact that it would have, you know, several years ago. Right. The crazy um, thing. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so you guys. I was, I was just going to say that the crazy thing is, I think a lot of fans weren't necessarily demanding a, a flat-out hill turn from Cena, as as mm-hmm. crazy and astronomical as it could have been if done right, like the Hogan one. Uh, I think if you remember One Night Stand 2006, which is a good example, mm-hmm. that, that people just wanted a bit of of depth and reality from Cena, whereas rather than mm. just being a Superman, mm. he, he went out there in hostile territory against Rob Van Dam. Just a few little subtle glances. He didn't really do anything. You know, it wasn't like he started uh, dumping on the, the local sports teams or doing your typical hill things, but just with a few right. little subtle body language things, he was he was embracing a, a different thing. And I think a, a lot of the time in wrestling these days, we would appreciate just just a bit of that depth but yeah the hulk thing oh, yeah. was just just astronomical after all those months testing the waters you remember that first hogan sting match on nitro dean the one that gets forgotten mm-hmm. where he was wearing black and he was kind of dabbling he, he, was, he was he was really desperately trying to find something to reignite himself and he was dabbling with a shades of gray character and and it was almost like a dummy run for what we got and that's what makes it so fascinating yeah, and and I think you know when when that whole NWO thing was was really firing on all cylinders. I mean, just unbelievable, an unbelievable catalyst for the company. I mean, un- unbelievable storyline. You know, arguably, although it it didn't seem like it at the time because it, it, it in the moment it seemed like it had gone on probably past its sell by date when it did kind of dissipate. But you look at some of the ideas in wrestling and factions and things like that that have persisted for longer, especially since WCW and how I think particularly the WWE, a lot of times they've really kind of presented something for, for, for way longer than, than it's, it's actually interesting to fans. It, you know, you kind of think, well, you know, could they have kept that going even longer in some form or fashion with some kind of, some kind of variation or, or evolution? Um, you know, what, what is kind of painful to think about though, is the fact that, Clearly, and this is noted by a lot of people in the book, there was never a plan to to, to wrap up that storyline. Mm. So, you know, it, it became such a phenomenon. It became such a an iconic thing. I mean, even to this day, you're still seeing NWO shirts and people still talk about it. And, and sports fans will reference, you know, when, for example, LeBron James signs with the Miami Heat and you have all of these uh, memes and videos equating it to Hulk Hogan turning at Bash at the Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you it's it's still something that's very much talked about, but uh, it's just um, it's just disappointing, I suppose, in a way that they set up this this huge dynamic that kind of enveloped the entire program and and everything at one time, you know, related to it, and every character seemed to uh, to bring up Hogan or the NWO in their in their promo. Yeah, and there was there was never you know I think Eric Bischoff says this in a book. Some other people say it. There was never a clear idea. How is this going to end up? How are we going to pivot from from A to B? And you know, try to present something which is maybe not as compelling, but somewhere in that in that ballpark. And as a result, you look at those shows in '99 where there's never a definitive end to the faction; it just kind of fizzles out. And um, I think you know that left a lot of people scratching their heads at the time because you invest years and years into this one storyline, and then there's just uh, really no payoff for it. Absolutely, definitely. I mean, one 
one thing you touched on there that, that I remember really standing out in my mind was that, as you say, every wrestler, whatever their <laughs> position on the card, they were talking about Hogan's heel turn at the time. And that was unprecedented. Right. Um, and that is where um, we had the, the interview where you may remember, Liam, we talked about it sounded like Hacks or Jim Duggan said, Hulk Hogan, you smoked my children. And we never did understand what he said. <laughs> um, it's that one. But, but yeah, that that stands out in my mind and also something we've we've talked about on previous episodes from my limited experience of, of booking shows as well is that with a story a wrestling storyline my philosophy at least is that you always you want to work backwards you start with what you start with how you want the, the payoff to be what the, the finale is and then you work your way back to the to the beginning because mm. ultimately the the heel gets their comeuppance and the people right. go home happy and, and that's <laughs> that's how it should be but yeah absolutely as you say they uh, i think would was this would this have probably been because of the various creative controls in there that if someone didn't like what was planned for them they could just say nope and get and move it you know i think it was a combination of a number of things i think part of this has to do with with eric bischoff's creative philosophy you know which uh tended to favor, I think, some degree of unpredictability, or I would, I would say a large degree of unpredictability and even chaos. I mean, I think that's something he's been on the record talking about. And a lot of the production people talk about in the book is that, you know, seeing as it was a live show, he didn't necessarily want, you know, everything to be scripted out to a T. Um, he didn't necessarily want, you know, in the back of every performer's mind, okay, here's how this week relates to the next week, the next week, the next week. And I think when WCW was ahead in the ratings, you know, they had a margin of error. So they could afford to maybe um, slip up a little bit or present a storyline that didn't entirely make, you know, a lot of sense. Um, and because, you know, the momentum was in their favor and the crowds were so hot and, and the show generally was so good, they could get away with that. Once it became more of a competitive situation, I think that mentality really was to their detriment because it made WCW very reactive at that point. You know, once once WWF really got parity with WCW in the ratings, sort of spring, early summer of 98, if you really think about it, WWF at that point really became the aggressors because, you know, they were they were deeply into the, the McMahon-Austin storyline and everything else at, at that time. And WCW was in a point where it was really reacting to what the WWF was presenting. So that's where you had things like, you know, Bret Hart all of a sudden, you know, turning heel out of nowhere, for example, or, you know, next thing, you know, Sting has been fighting the NWO for 18 months. Next thing you know, he's in a, a part of the NWO. I mean, all of this stuff happening in kind of like a desperate attempt to turn everything around in one week, mm. you know, and, and that's, that's something that really became a feature of the company once the WWF turned around was kind of, I think, again, as an outsider looking in, there was a sense that, you know, whatever's happened, what, you know, we, okay, we've lost the momentum, we're no longer number one, but if we can just do something shocking, you know, it doesn't matter if it makes sense, it doesn't matter if it actually contradicts the last year of programming, if we can just stun the people and shock the people, we can turn this whole thing around in one week. And um, it just got more and more desperate, you know, as you get into 99, 2000, and then, and then towards the end. So um, I think, you know, 
we talked about some of the best moments. I think they were aided by that that approach not to be so rigid and so structured. But the problem is, as it became more competitive, I think he probably did need to become a little bit or a lot more tighter in in, in terms of that approach. Yeah, you mentioned um, Steve Austin there. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think had had he stayed in WCW, do you think he would ever have exploded in the way he did in WWF, or do you think he would have just been perennially in the mid card? In your oh, opinion, I, I think in in my opinion, perennially in the mid card. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I don't see any scenario where, um, you know there would have been the catalyst for him to develop that character. I think, you know, what he went through in WCW, um, obviously everyone remembers the, the promos in, in ECW where he's talking about, you know, Monday NyQuil and, 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 and Bischoff and, and all of the rest of it. Um, I think, you know, that experience pushed him to evolve as a, as a character and as a performer. And, and unless he was let go from WCW, that never would have happened. And so, I think he probably would have been on a similar level as maybe, you know, your, your Eddie Guerrero's, your, your Chris Benoit's sort of maybe upper mid card, mix it up from time to time with the main eventers. Um, but, you know, a lot of the, the wrestlers themselves have, have talked about this. The fact that the wrestlers actually perceived there to be a, what they called like a big 12, you know, so 12 main event guys. And off the top of my head, I can't remember all the names, but you can fill in the blanks. I mean, we're obviously talking about the, the Hogan's, you know, Nash's, Halls, Savages, Sting, Luger, you know, uh, Piper, the, the, the Bret Hart. There were yeah. tw- 12, 12 guys that, you know, were basically immovable. I mean, as long as they had contracts and as long as they were being booked on the shows, um, they weren't all of a sudden going to, you know, become mid-carders or, or opening match wrestlers. So there was definitely a ceiling i think where you could probably take yourself from the opening match to the mid card or the upper mid card as a wrestler but um at that time in wcw you know you you, you weren't going to get prioritized over over those big names i would argue so i don't i don't think that he would have come anywhere close to that stardom if he stayed with uh, with wcw I, i've also got to wonder aloud if austin would have been the wrestler we came to know him as, if not for that, because for me, the way he was treated by WCW was what lit that fire. Uh, exactly, there, were, yeah. there were a lot of things late on in those years when he was still employed that kind of just like that, that wore him down, but it was actually mm. being canned. You see, I mean, we've all seen like the ECW segments and things like that. That's what really, for me, that's what really lit that fire and made him want to try again, rather than just like accept the treatment you could argue. Exactly. Almost. And, and a lot of talented people in WCW did get wore down, didn't they, themselves, you know, towards towards the end, people that you could have seen at one point could have been a future main eventer or a, a really key player for the company who just got tired of what they perceived to be a, a glass ceiling. So, you know, in retrospect, you can say that there were definitely um, characters that the WCW, you know, there was always that, that knock at the time that, you know, WCW doesn't develop any any sort of homegrown talent that all, you know, the only people they feature are ex WWF knockoffs. You know, it's, it's quite interesting to think about in the last few years, you know, you've had the WWE featuring people like, you know, Goldberg and Sting, for example, you know, Sting wouldn't necessarily be a WCW native, but he's someone who we really associate with the company. So I, I think there were quote unquote, you know, homegrown or something close to homegrown stars that existed, but that balance, you know, arguably was, was out of whack and, 
Um, as WWF started to develop some of that newer, fresher talent, you know, again, from a perception standpoint, it was like, okay, we've got The Rock and Steve Austin and all of these guys in their 30s on one station. Then you've got a bunch of guys in their 40s and 50s over here. So for the type of crowd that wrestling was attracting at that time, I think that that made the choice a lot easier for, for a lot of the people. So did, did putting this book together after all of the interviews and the gathering documents and piecing this all together into this amazing book, does it, does it give you the impression that WCW ever really stood a chance of prolonging success or did it give you the impression that they basically sold their soul to get that, those two years on top and it was always going to be uh, like a, like having to pay the piper, so to speak, and it was all going to come, like the creative control and things like that was going to come back and bite them. Well, I think you know the subtitle of the book. You know, the book is Nitro: The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. I I, I attribute the uh, fact that I think the collapse was inevitable more so to the dysfunction that we talked about before vis-a-vis WCW and, and Turner Broadcasting. You know, again, that's that's not to say that WCW could not have prolonged um, its existence, possibly, or made you know a, a, a better argument for why it should have stayed around, given the condition it was in at the end. Um, but uh, you know, the, the further that it's it's kind of a cliche statement to say because it's been said so often, but I I, I tend to believe that it's true. The further that Ted himself got away from being able to have a say in WCW's affairs, the more likely it became that the company wasn't going to exist. And I think sometimes, you know, as fans, we um, we look at WCW sometimes the same way that we would look at kind of an independent wrestling organization where, again, I've never run shows, but I would imagine there tends to be somewhat of a correlation between your business success and the quality of shows that you're, you're putting on. Um, with WCW, though, is much more complex than that. Um, you know, the, you look at some of the, the the foibles that went on in terms of accounting, and how the various revenues that were being generated by the company were were being accounted for, and where they were ultimately going. You look at some of the expenses that were dumped on the WCW books. Um, you know, you, you look at the fact that, and we go into this in quite a bit of detail in the book, the success that WCW actually had was a little bit of a double-edged sword because the way that things worked at Turner was such that the more revenue that a division generated, um, the more the more resources they were given for the following year, which in turn, you know, created an additional set of, of expectations. So in other words, that may have made sense for many parts of their business where you could be reasonably certain that quarter to quarter, year to year, there's going to be some growth. But for something like wrestling, you know, there's obviously that cliche attached to it that it's cyclical in nature. Even if you don't buy into that totally, you'd have to acknowledge that wrestling goes through, you know, hot periods and, and colder periods. Yeah. Um, for something that like wrestling, that wasn't really applicable. You know, just because Starcade does a 1.0 pay-per-view buy rate in whatever year doesn't mean that it's going to do a 1.2 the following year. You know, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily work like that. Um, so I think the failure of TBS to get their heads around the uniqueness of this entity and to treat it as, as something different um, really was a, was a major factor in, in, um, in WCW's demise, which, by the way, doesn't excuse the fact that a lot of mistakes were made um, creatively and a lot of mistakes were made internally that definitely would have uh, 
um, you know, hastened that that downfall. And um, w would you say that making this book and publishing this book has changed the way you view wrestling as a fan? Has it has, has it had an effect on how you enjoy wrestling in the in the current day if you watch much at all? Yeah, I, I suppose you know. Just to be totally honest, it's it's kind of hard for me to to watch a lot of the current stuff. I'm trying to get back into it, um, but for me, what always appealed to me most, I think, about that time in wrestling was, you know, I, I don't know if you guys are the same, but I was always drawn in by the crowd reactions and just the the excitement of the shows. You know, it was very much like a sports based presentation in terms of the way that the fans you know, reacted to what was happening in the ring. Yeah. You know, I think, I think about those episodes of raw, you know, where there's every single person, it seems like in the crowd has a sign, you know, the show comes on the air, there's pyro, there's Jim Ross is screaming at the top of his lungs. You know, there's, there's, there's signs everywhere the eye can see. Uh, and then, you know, whoever that first person was coming out, you know, just the, the just the sheer excitement and, and, uh, uh, uh and, and feeling around that, um, was something that I, I don't personally see in, in contemporary wrestling. And that's kind of what, you know, to me, when I watch it, that, that feels like there's always something missing. It feels like maybe, um, I don't know if it's the range of entertainment options at our disposal now. I don't know if it's technology and the fact that you can go to one of these things with a cell phone in hand and maybe you're disconnected from what's happening in the moment, but it's just something on a subconscious level doesn't, doesn't feel the same. Um, so, I, I suppose not to go too far from your question, but in terms of changing the way that I look at wrestling, um, I think it gave me going back and looking at some of these old shows, speaking to the people involved in it, it gave me more of an appreciation of what appealed to people like me in the first place, which was just those incredible, you know, exciting uh, moments, whether it be a heel turn, a title change, what have you, um, the sheer unpredictability and the feeling of, I you know literally don't know where they're going to take this. I don't know what what's going to happen next week, and and really looking forward to that. Um, you know, I think that that really drove that that point home for me. So, I don't know if if that's how you guys look at today's wrestling. I, you know, we haven't spoke about it, but that's just a that's just a feeling that I have about it. Yeah, I think it, it's very different. Um, to now, obviously, put aside the the current environment where there, there isn't a crowd, but, but right. generally speaking, um, it, it used to be. I think you where you, you've said about the, the big names that they had in both both camps, it was about the the wrestlers themselves, whereas nowadays it seems to be more, obviously WWE is the, the, the only big game in town, but it, it's about the WWE brand as a whole. Um, and mm -hmm. You'll see it advertised as WWE wrestling as opposed to WWE wrestling with... Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, whoever, you know, the, the names right. that would have been out at, at, at that time, definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I think no. as well, just not having a competition um, oh, has, has affected things, which is you know, when you think about um, AEW. And uh, I mean, were you, actually, were you, were you surprised when, to see uh, All Elite Wrestling getting onto TNT television? You know, I, to be honest with you, it might surprise you, but I wasn't, you know, because I, first of all, I think two reasons, um, the, the personnel 
associated with TNT now is totally different to when to the time period this book covers. Mm. So it, it yes, it's Turner Network Television, but I mean literally in name only. I mean none of those people that are profiled in the book, most of them by most of them actually by 2001, and the rest of them, the large portion of them by 2003, you know, were done with Turner. So it's it's a complete, you know, I, I've seen some people say, well, isn't it ironic that, and I mean, it is ironic, but some people have said, oh, the TNT have changed their minds, you know, they realize they made a mistake, and it's like, it's, it's, it's not the same thing at all. Um, and I, you know, I know that Tony Khan has a, you know, very close relationship with, um, with the guy in charge there. So, you know, I, I think those, those two factors don't altogether surprise me, although certainly when this book was published, you know, AEW wasn't, I mean, there were rumors that a promotion was starting up, but there was nothing concrete that was, that was out there. Um, so, you know, I think, again, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I, I think when AEW started, this is kind of hard to think about now, but if you put yourself back in that time frame, this is when the, the drop-off in the raw numbers really started to accelerate. I mean, it's been going on for a long time, but WWE wasn't in a strong position around the time that AEW, uh, AEW rather, debuted on TNT. And personally, I may be in the minority here, but I would have loved to have seen them go on Monday nights from the beginning. Now, I, I know that TNA, you know, that didn't work out very well for them yeah. at all. They did not have the resources to present anything like a comparable visual product. You know, like if you're switching between those, TNA looked like the minor leagues and WWE looked like the major leagues. With the resources that AEW had, I'm not saying that it would be a Nitro Raw thing, but I think it would have been very interesting to see just to gauge what the numbers were for that for that first episode. And, you know, maybe you take a different strategy sh shortly after that. Um, but I think WWE was at such a weak point. It was kind of a, a wounded animal that that would have been the ideal time, in my view, to test the audience and see what, what could have happened. But I don't know how you guys feel about that. Well, I think outside of sporadic, needless pot shots that um, AEW make towards WWE on, on their television, like a lot of the running jokes that Brody Lee makes compared to, you know, compared to like, Vince McMahon in real life. And I know Cody mm -hmm. Rhodes smashed up a Triple H-like throne. They always make a few pot shots. Outside of, of those, which I really don't like, um, mm -hmm. they, they have been doing a good job early doors of setting the business model of we recognize there is room in the market for a second major. There, there is a right. market in the alternative. Uh, and for a lot of the time, that's what kept WCW going. You know, those mm -hmm. early, early years pre-Hogan, there was enough of an audience there from the old NWA days that that would keep them going. They wanted more, fair enough. But I think that's where TNA went wrong, is they did such a bad mm. job of appreciating the alternative fan, because I list myself as one of those. I, I, I will watch WWE if it's good, but I've always been a fan of, of that second brand, because that's what... That's what helps jar up good content is the competition and having mm. a choice. And mm -hmm. uh, TNA spent all that time cultivating AJ Styles, Samoa Joe, and they had this generation of talent that could have been the next, you know, the, the, you got the Stings, the Lugas, the Steiners from the WCW days. 
But then they mm. had that period after 2005 and 2006 when they got really, really good for that sort of fan. Uh, they spent the next few years with a with a certain guy at the mastermind of it, bro. Again, I won't name any names. Um, bringing it, bringing in uh, WWF rejects, like guys who've just been released, like Rikishi, putting them straight over them, uh, doing really incoherent storylines, and they lost that. Now, if they'd have jumped, tried, tried to jump on a Monday Night War as soon as the, the guys like Samoa Joe and they just got Kurt Angle and AJ Styles, and right when that was hot, with a bit of cohesive storytelling, who knows? But mm-hmm. I, I, I think if, if, if AEW was to do that down the line, who knows how it would do. But I actually, early doors, I appreciate the fact that they realise, look, there is, there is enough here for us to... To, to stand on our own two feet, and if they if they can get to that point where they're where they're really really strong, then maybe they will move in on WWE a little bit. But I'd, I'd hate for them to do something rash that would rob mm, us mm. of the alternative. Because one of the reasons we have this podcast, you know, WCW have all, already robbed us of that. TNA have already given us hope and then snatched it away. And I really hope AEW are the ones who can just make sure there's always something mainstream that's good to watch. Yeah, I think that's very well stated. That's a very fair point. And I, I tend to agree with you with a lot, of, a lot of what you said there. I think my perspective is you, know, you look at the WWE and I think they have a, a very nice cushion at the moment. They have a, a nice, again, present circumstances aside. I mean, obviously what's going on in the world is, is making things a bit tricky right now. But, um, you know, between the network, between the, the Saudi money, between the the TV rights fees are able to command now, which wasn't even a thought in anyone's mind back in the time that we've been talking about today. They've, they've got a huge margin of error um, in terms of that they're, they're not necessarily, you know, under tremendous pressure to present incredibly compelling programming. You know, their, their business literally doesn't survive on that um, the same way that it, that it did decades ago. And so, you know, what I would like to see if it's like, okay, if, 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 uh, to this point, you know, they, they still haven't um, got out of resting on their laurels and it's, you know, being what, what seems to me very complacent about things. I would just like to see something come along that would force them to, to up their game um, because ultimately I think that would be good for wrestling um, and good for the industry as a whole. Yeah. If, um, you know, instead of giving us these, these long drawn out three hour shows where, you know, it's it's a lot of times very painful to watch. I, I just I hope that there's something that comes along that really gets them to to uh, step up their game. Yeah, I think this this goes back to and we've had a sort of discussion about this before, Liam, of why you know we loved WCW, and I think I've whether it be music or or wrestling or or even my choice of football team, it's I've always, I've never been a fan of the the big the mainstream, the big number one. I've always mm. like rooted for the, for the, the, the underdog as such. And, yeah. and in the same way that I would, if, you know, if I had a tape come in of WWF and WCW, I'd always watch WCW first. And I find myself watching a lot more AEW at the moment than, than WWE. And I think it is that just wanting, wanting to have that, um, that successful alternative and to give the, the WWF or WWE offices is now um, some, some competition. And hopefully the fact that there is one man in charge, one owner in Tony Khan will be a, a bit of uh, coherence for, for AEW that WCW didn't always have. Mm. 
Let's hope so. Well, um, just before we uh, we let you go, Guy, just um, if people want to get hold of uh, of the book Nitro, the inevitable, sorry, the incredible rise, inevitable collapse of Ted Turner's WCW, um, I'm presuming it's on Amazon and other booksellers. That that's correct, yeah. And guys, I I really appreciate the opportunity. It was great to talk to you. And you know, anytime you want to do this again, just just please give me a shout. Um, in terms of where to get the book, there's really two places primarily. People can go either to Amazon, and you know that that applies if you're in the US, UK, Canada, wherever. Uh, again, Nitro, the incredible rise and inevitable collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. You can just type in Nitro book, and it'll probably pop up. Um, on Amazon, you'll see there's a the paperback version, also um, Kindle version, and we just came out with um, with uh, an audio book, which is uh, right now exclusively through Audible. So if you have the Audible app or if you, again, just go on the Amazon page, it's all linked in there. You can listen to the book um, as an audio version. It's about 17 and a half hours, so it'll keep you busy for a while. Um, and you can also go to wcwnitrobook.com um, where you can actually get the book for, for a little bit cheaper. And uh, if you want a, a signed copy, you can also get one through there. So Amazon and wcwnitrobook.com. And where can people get hold of you on social media? Yeah, so we have a uh, a, a Twitter account um, for the book, which is WCW, just at WCW Nitro Book. Um, that's a good place to follow because occasionally, you know, we'll put out different um, sort of uh, clips and materials and things, which, um, you know, could be, could be quite interesting that people haven't seen before. Um, also, you know, I am planning on, on uh, continuing to, to write about this subject. So that's a good place to, um, to go just to get updates on that. Um, and you can also just shoot me an email um, if anyone wants to get in touch at guyevanswcwbook at gmail.com. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that. Um, th- just, uh, I-, I do have to ask on the, on the audio book, audio, audible book, um, mm. in my mind, for some reason, I just had the mental image of uh, the book being narrated by Scott Steiner. And I think that would be, <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, you know what? I wish I wish you would have told me six <laughs> months ago. I would have picked up the phone and made that happen. Okay, for, so for the anniversary edition, that's what we're gonna do. I like or, it. I like the way you recommend. I recommend Dave Penzer, another friend of the podcast. Obviously, mm. he's got a great voice for it. And I always remember the anecdote he shared with us on the episode where he joined us, where they had to buy a time at a, uh, at a thunder tape, and he basically just read mm. off DDP's book to kill time. <laughs> So he's, uh, he's so got experience he's is what you're saying. He's absolutely talented at that. He'd be the man for the job, I would argue. <laughs> I like it. I like Fantastic. It. Guy, thank you so much for giving up your time to speak to us. We really, really do appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, if you uh, if you haven't got hold of the, the uh, Nitro book, then, well, as we said before, we don't say anything's a must-read, but this is a must-read. Thank you so much, Guy. Take care, and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Greetings, Grapple fans. Mike Quackenbush here on Because WCW. Wow. What? Do you know, I said it about Lady Blossom. I'm going to say it again. What a nice guy. Quite literally in this case.
Yeah, it's it's really reinforcing your point of the last few months of what a golden age for podcasts. Golden uh, age, Liam. That that was fantastic. We, we we knew it would be great insight, and it didn't disappoint. And what I really liked about it most was not only did he answer all questions about all topics, it was it was great when it just sometimes devolved into a a good old fashioned natter by three really passionate guys about WCW. Yeah. Uh, you get the impression with the three of us could pro- when we're allowed back in bars we we could sit in a bar somewhere <laughs> talk, and talk about those though all day we really really yes. could um although I, I did feel a bit bad about right at the beginning there calling him english and then finding out he was welsh yes for those awkward. of for those of you outside the uk hearing this we just want to establish that it's like the worst thing you can do and that so, may be worse yeah. than dean just did something worse than the last episode where i had to bleep myself I mean, it's kind of, I guess, is it like calling a Canadian American, maybe something like that? I don't know. But, well, um, our subject matter is wrestling. If you think about it, for the longest of times, if someone was not born in the United States, you think of all the wrestlers from the United States would be like, from Glens Falls, New York, or from Savannah, Georgia, and you get like a Japanese wrestler, from Japan. It's yeah. It's just like one place. <laughs> yeah, but hey, I mean... I know it's a bit awkward, but you know I've made Bret Hart cry, so I've I've, I've had I'll more take awkward times. Who I've hasn't? had more awkward. <laughs> I've had more awkward times. We should have asked Guy. We should say, Guy. One other question we got for you is: Have you made Bret Hart cry while making this yeah. book? Because let's face it, everyone has. Everyone has, yeah. Oh well. Right. Well, that pretty much wraps it up for this episode. Thank you so much for downloading this wherever you get your podcast from. If you are new to us, then um, we have got another 60 episodes of this, uh, which you can um, you can listen back to and download our back catalogue. Um, we will be back very shortly, probably with the Nitro Watch Long. We've got a few more guests lined up, some pay-per-view reviews as well. So uh, in the meantime, on behalf of my co-host, Liam, this is me, the Twisted Genius, saying thanks for listening, and I'll see you ringside.